and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up today, we'll be looking at the review of how the GMC handled the case of Dr. Manjula Aurora, the GP who served a month's suspension over a claim she had been promised a laptop, and the GMC's response to those findings. We'll be talking about what's going on with patient access to their prospective records online after a week of confusion that's seen the 1st of November deadline when IT suppliers were due to turn on this functionality for all their practices missed. And we'll be looking at reimbursement for locum GPs to cover sick leave and why a huge gap between the level of reimbursement practices receive and the actual cost of locum cover means GP partners with burnout are being forced to consider returning to their job before they feel ready. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Before we start, I'd just like to say that we're always keen to highlight positive news and the good work that's going on in general practice on both the podcast and gponline.com. If you're up to anything in your practice or working life that you think deserves attention, or you would like to give a shout out to an individual practice or other organisational group that you think is making a real difference to patient care or your local community, then please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. We'll put that address in the show notes as well. So first up, this week, the GMC published its review into the case of Manchester GP Dr Manjula Aurora, who was suspended from practising for a month because of a claim that she had been promised a laptop. Listeners may remember this case, which sparked outrage earlier this year after the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service imposed the suspension after it found that Dr Aurora's actions had been dishonest and constituted misconduct which was serious. The tribunal came to this conclusion despite acknowledging that Dr Aurora's dishonesty was confined to the use of a single word on a single occasion and that she was a person of good character. Nick, can you explain again exactly what happened in this case? So Dr Aurora was working as a sessional GP in Manchester for a company called Master Call when this case came up. She'd been working with a company which provides telephone and in-person consultations, uh, GP consultations to patients registered with practices in Stockport and Trafford since 2010. From November 2019, Master Call took on a contract with the Northwest Ambulance Service, which involved providing a clinical assessment service. And the following month, Dr Aurora was referred to the GMC by Master Call, and there were two elements to the case, the reason why she was referred. So one related to an allegation that on the 29th of December 2019, Dr. Aurora telephoned the Northwest Ambulance Service to arrange for the clinical assessment service to be switched off without first seeking agreement from the clinician who was the shift lead. And then there was a, a second allegation, which was that Dr. Aurora had dishonestly claimed to have been promised a laptop. And this second claim related to a phone call that Dr. Aurora made to Master Call's IT department on the 30th of December. And again, that's 2019. The medical tribunal that considered the case found that the first allegation around switching off the clinical assessment service was not proved. So that claim was completely dismissed. But the tribunal ruled that Dr. Aurora had been dishonest in claiming to have been promised a laptop. And it, it decided that, as you said, that this constituted serious misconduct and that as a result of that, she should be handed a one month suspension. So the detail that this allegation hinged on was that Dr. Aurora had received an email from the medical director at Master Call to say that no laptops were currently available. But this is a quote, I will note your interest when the next rollout happens. 
she then subsequently called the IT department and she said that she'd been told she could have a laptop next time it's available. And she used the word that she'd been promised one. So one of the points in the ruling that really stood out when it was published in May this year was that the tribunal chose to suspend Dr Aurora despite acknowledging, as you've said, that her so-called dishonesty had been confined to the use of a single word on a single occasion. And they, like you said, said she was a person of good character. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there was this huge outcry from the medical profession over the decision to suspend her. The BMA's then chair, Dr Chan Nagpal, said the case would add to doctors' fears about the GMC's disproportionate and unfair approach to regulating the medical profession. And he said at the time that doctors were perplexed and deeply concerned that this case had ever made it to a full tribunal rather than just being resolved locally. The GMC then announced a review would be led by its Black and Minority Ethnic Forum chair, Professor Iqbal Singh, and a leading KC, Martin Ford, to look at how the case was handled and how it came to be before a medical tribunal. Dr Aurora appealed the decision to suspend her, but in the end, only a month after the tribunal ruling was made public in May this year, the GMC accepted that it had made a mistake and it agreed to restore her full registration with the licence to practice and to remove the fitness to practice ruling from her record completely. And the GMC said at that point that it believed the legal test of dishonesty had been applied incorrectly. And that was a point that was reiterated in the review that was published this week. Yeah. So you mentioned there the results of the review have been published. What does it actually have to say? And in particular, what did it have to say about the way the GMC handled this case? Yeah. So as the GMC had already recognised, the case against Dr Aurora should never have gone ahead. And that was something that the review was very clear about. The lawyer involved in the review, Martin Ford, KC, said that the legal test for dishonesty was incorrectly applied and the report as a whole highlighted multiple opportunities that the GMC missed to prevent the case needlessly going to the stage that it did. In terms of what those missed opportunities were, the review found that people within the GMC expressed misgivings about the case, but those weren't acted on. It found no evidence that the GMC tried to get the person who referred the case to raise it initially with Dr Aurora's local GMC responsible officer. And that was a a step that could have led to local resolution and avoided the, the medical tribunal. The report also found that the GMC did not seek advice from its legal counsel on the merits of the case and that it should have communicated better with the organisation that referred Dr Aurora, Mastercall. It also expressed disappointment that consideration of culture and language wasn't explicitly documented at any stage of the fitness to practice process. And that's despite the fact that English is not Dr Aurora's first language. And the case hinged, as we've mentioned, on the use of a single word on a single occasion. So Professor Singh and Mr Ford found no clear or conclusive evidence or data to suggest that biased thinking affected this case. But they also found no evidence or data that would definitively dispel the perception that it was affected by bias. Some of those missed opportunities that we've talked about where many of the recommendations in the report are focused and they're around creating a culture that promotes local resolution of issues where possible, more opportunities for people at all stages of these cases to speak out and raise concerns about the cases and the merits of them, better communication with legal counsel to give them the chance to consider the merits of the case as well, 
better guidance around referrals, decisions on referrals, and ultimately more support for doctors facing a fitness to practice case. There are some other points as well, but those are the key ones, I would say. Last week, Professor Iqbal Singh, who, as you mentioned there, was the doctor who led the review, he spoke at an RCGP online event that we both attended. I mean, did he have anything to say about the case during that conversation that sort of threw any light onto all of this as well? Professor Singh said that ultimately cases such as that of Dr. Manjula Aurora, and to be clear, this is where a GP faced a suspension after all the trauma of a fitness to practice case that the GMC has admitted should never have happened, must become never events. What that term means is something that should be avoidable if available preventative measures have been implemented. It's a phrase often used, for example, in relation to surgical errors. So something like, for example, the wrong leg being operated on or a piece of medical equipment being left inside a person after an operation. Professor Singh said that he'd initially been amazed when he read about the outcome of Dr. Aurora's case, and he felt a real sense of apprehension that it had ever got to the stage of a medical tribunal. And he mentioned that three quarters of doctors who go through a medical tribunal case, even if they're cleared, experience a detrimental impact on their mental or physical well-being. And that really just highlights how devastating it is that in this case, a doctor was suspended for something that should never have led to a GMC referral at all. And Professor Singh talked too about the need for the sanction system in the UK to recognise cultural differences and for effective induction, particularly for international medical graduate doctors joining the NHS. You've talked about some of the issues there that I think it really strikes fear into the hearts of lots of doctors' cases like this, because the, as you mentioned, you know, being hauled in front of the GMC is a really stressful, horrible experience. And there is real concern, I think, among the medical profession that there are cases that go through to tribunals that should never really get there. You spoke to GMC Chief Executive Charlie Massey about the report and its findings. What did he have to say about all of this? And are there any things the regulator plans to change in the wake of this case? The GMC has accepted the findings of the review in full and, as I've mentioned, has apologised for the way Dr Aurora's case was handled and accepted that significant mistakes were made. And Charlie Massey agreed that it was critically important to make sure that cases such as Dr Aurora's become never events for the GMC. In terms of when that might become the case, he was reluctant to put a timescale on it at this stage but said there were a number of steps within the GMC's gift to begin to act on immediately or almost immediately. So acting on elements of the recommendations around making sure the GMC as a whole is culturally competent, making sure there's a culture within the organisation where people can speak up when they have misgivings about cases such as this one. He was keen to emphasise work the GMC's already done around redesigning referral forms, increasing outreach capacity by bringing in more employer liaison officers to make sure there are strong relationships with responsible officers who are the people responsible for clinical governance processes within healthcare organisations. And things like reviews of the fairness of decision-making processes that the uh, the regulator carries out, the reviews of um, the fairness of fitness-to-practice cases, for example. And Mr. Massey actually said that thousands of cases have already been avoided through those strong relationships between employers and responsible officers at a local level. Interestingly, in this case, because Dr. Aurora's employer was not what the GMC calls a designated body, which would have its own responsible officer, and in this case, the organisation didn't have its own GMC employment liaison officer, there's a sense that that may have reduced the chances of a local resolution in this case. Next up, 
This week, the two biggest GPIT suppliers, EMIS and TPP, confirmed that they would not enable automatic patient access to prospective record entries from the 1st of November, a deadline that had been set by NHS England. After concerns raised by the BMA and the RCGP about whether practices were ready for the change, the change that was due to go ahead on the 1st of November would have seen online access enabled for all patient records in practices using EMIS or TPP software, which are the majority of practices in England. This would have allowed all patients over 16 to access any future entries into their patient record via the NHS app or any of the other apps that link to practice systems, unless practices had turned this off for specific patients. But following the EMIS and TPP announcement, there was real confusion about exactly what was going on and what was happening with patient access to records. So, Nick, what exactly has been going on? Is patient access to records still going to happen? And why has there been so much confusion about all of this? Yes, the plan is still to give patients access to any information added to their digital medical records after the 1st of November this year. Originally, NHS England had said that a switch would be flipped to enable this access automatically across all GP practices using the TPP or EMIS practice IT systems, which, as you said, is the vast majority of practices in England from the 1st of November. But we've now had confirmation that it won't happen across all GP practices now until the 30th of November. So there's been a fair bit of confusion over this in the last few days. TPP and EMIS said just before the original 1st of November rollout deadline that they were not going to switch on functionality to allow patients to access future entries to their medical records. And so it seemed like the rollout was not going to happen. And the reason they gave for this was that they'd received lots of feedback from practices that they were concerned about patient safety and whether they could comply with their responsibilities as data controllers under the GDPR if this access was switched on. But then just a day later on the, the sort of slipped 1st of November deadline, Steve Barclay, the recently reappointed Health and Social Care Secretary, said in Parliament that the rollout was going ahead from the 1st of November and that it would be complete across all practices by the end of the month. So that brought angry comments from the BMA and others about constantly changing policy and confusion. And then at the end of the day, on the, the 1st of November, NHS England published some advice to clarify and expand on the sort of partial comments that the Health and Social Care Secretary had possibly slightly un unhelpfully made in Parliament earlier. This advice from NHS England acknowledges that there are different reasons why practices aren't ready to go ahead, or at least some practices are not ready to go ahead. And it said that if practices tell their system supplier by 5pm on the 4th of November, so that's Friday the 4th of November, that they want to hold off, then the suppliers will pause the rollout for them. And for practices that don't ask for a pause, data entered into patient records from the 1st of November will start to become visible to patients from Friday the 4th of November. Obviously, from the 30th of November, so the end of the month, the rollout will be automatically enabled across all practices. So 30th of November is the new 1st of November, let's say. So will practices be able to opt out of it after the 30th of November if they want to? And is there any ability for them to do that? So practices can't opt out. And NHS England has reiterated that the plan to enable patients to access their records is part of the deal agreed as part of the five-year GP contract that started from 2019. So that's kind of set in stone. NHS England has advised practices not ready to go ahead 
to speak with their local commissioners to talk about potential additional support that they could get and to, to sort of formalise plans for how they can prepare for the getting ready to have this rolled out. Even though practices can't choose not to enable ultimately patient access to records, there is still some control for practices even after the rollout goes ahead. So practices will be able to locally disable patient record access function or deny individual patients access if they feel there's a need to do that. Practices can also amend how records are configured for individual patients. So in terms of what they can and can't see up to a point, they can redact elements of records to hide them from patients' view. And with some IT systems, they can do things like switch off access to attached documents. So there is still some control for practices even after this process kicks into the next phase. I think it's worth mentioning that this isn't the first delay there's been with patient access to records. I think there's a general consensus that there is value to patients having access to their records in terms of allowing them to have a greater understanding of their health conditions. And it's something that both the BMA and the RCGP support with some caveats, which I'll come on to in a minute. But NHS England certainly sees this as a way of helping to reduce pressure on practices. It argues it will save practices time in terms of fielding inquiries from patients because patients may be able to get access to some information they need from their records. But then there are real concerns around this blanket approach that's currently being taken. So the BMA and RCGP have both warned that because practices are under unprecedented pressure at the minute, it's been very difficult for them to engage properly with such a huge change. And I know that some practices I've spoken to have found it a huge amount of work. The BMA believes that the safest way of providing patients with access to their records is through a consent-driven or shared decision-making process where each patient chooses to opt in, which would then allow practices to check the records carefully before granting them access. NHS England, on the other hand, clearly favours the big bang approach of turning it on for everyone and then leaving practices with the additional work of working out who this might not be suitable for. So this was all first due to happen in December 2021, but then it was deferred until April this year in order to give time to work through some of the concerns that have been raised by GPs. So it was deferred until November, from April to November, i.e. now. So one of the reasons for the delay until this month has been safeguarding concerns. I mean, that was one of the big concerns that came up around April, in particular around people who might be in abusive or coercive relationships where the abusive partner can potentially access a person's records. Some of this was addressed between April and November this year, because the RCGP updated its training on online records, NHS England set out specific advice asking practices to identify patients that could be at risk of harm by having access turned on automatically and then applying these kind of opt-out codes to these records so it would exclude them from the blanket rollout. But I think some of these concerns really do remain. For example, do practices really know everyone on their list who's potentially at risk? Have they had time to properly apply these codes that will opt patients out? You know, those are quite big questions. And then on top of that, both the BMA and RCGP have also raised concerns in the past couple of months about the redaction software, which has become available to practices. And now practices would need to use this to redact any references to third parties because they would basically be breaching data protection laws if that information was allowed to be viewed by patients. And the BMA and RCGP are really concerned that this software is just not up to scratch. I mean, the BMA has said it has significant clinical concerns about it. Then there's worries that the rest of the NHS doesn't understand the changes that are happening and what this means for information that they are providing to practices or understand that it will be visible to patients. 
The BMA's also pointed out that there hasn't been a public awareness campaign. So do patients know that, you know, the next time they log into the NHS app, all of their records are going to be there. And, you know, if they've shared any logins or passwords with family members, that's a potential problem. But I guess the real crux of the issue is that GPs and practices are the data controllers by law. And so therefore, they're responsible for these records under data protection laws. The RCGP has raised some real concerns about what automating some of these functions means for GPs' responsibility in that role. And the BMA has gone even further and said it's not confident that all practices can uphold their obligations under law as data controllers if they allow automatic access to records. So I think while NHS England is saying that this is going to go ahead from the 30th of November, there's still quite a lot of questions and concerns that really do need to be answered. Finally, one other thing to note, and I think it's worth people bearing in mind, is that the BMA has highlighted that NHS England has plans to encourage patients to request access to their full historic electronic record, which would include full text entries during 2023, possibly through some system where they'd be able to press a button on the NHS app to request it. The BMA has pointed out that the workload ramifications of this would be unthinkable, that's the word they used, would be absolutely enormous given the time it would take to review the huge numbers of documents and free text within millions of records. I mean, extensive redactions would probably be needed to remove third-party mentions and other informations. While this may be NHS England's ultimate goal, I think the BMA and others would probably be pushing back quite hard on any attempt for that to actually happen. So moving on, Emma, you've been looking at the issue of locum reimbursement for GPs who are off sick and found some worrying issues with the current system. Yeah, so this relates to the amount of money that practices can claim back under the GP contract if a GP partner or a salaried GP is off work sick. Now, under the contract, practices in England are eligible to receive up to £1,751.52p per week to cover the cost of an absent GP. So that's a salaried GP or a GP partner. In Wales, that amount's slightly less. It's £1,734.18p per week. So practices can claim that amount after the second week of absence and up until 26 weeks from their commissioner. And if the locum cover is less than that, they claim the actual amount that the locum invoices. And then after 26 weeks, that amount is halved. So the problem really is that these payments have remained broadly the same since they were first introduced in 2017, 2018. So they've not increased in line with inflation. And they've not taken account of the soaring cost of employing locums, which has obviously increased as the workforce has shrunk and locums have become harder to get hold of. Also, the amount available applies regardless of how many sessions the GP who's off sick works. So while, you know, that figure might be enough to cover a four session GP, for example, practices are going to really obviously struggle to cover six or seven sessions or more with the funding available. Most practices take out locum insurance to potentially make up the difference And they will almost certainly have insurance that covers the period after 26 weeks. But we've discovered that, you know, a lot of these insurance policies do provide reduced cover for those first 26 weeks. And that's what can really catch out practices and individual GP partners. You've been speaking to a GP who's um, had a really hard time because of the problems that you've been talking about. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened in her case? Yeah, so part of the reason we've been looking at this this week is because we were contacted by this GP partner who has to remain anonymous, who really is in a very awful position. So this GP, she's a seven session partner and she was signed off work in August with severe burnout. 
And she's now getting help and support from NHS practitioner health, as well as a doctor, which is obviously really positive. But it's taken her quite a while to come to terms with the fact that she's had to stop work because she's ill. And she told me that she felt real guilt about leaving work and in particular leaving her partners with extra work. So because of all of that, she was really relieved, you know, when the practice was able to find a GP to cover her sessions. After she'd been off work for about six weeks, she found out that under her partnership agreement, she's liable to make up the shortfall between the actual cost of employing the locum and the reimbursement the practice is receiving from the Integrated Care Board. Now, this GP practices in an area where it's really difficult to find locum cover. And so the practice has had to rely on an agency to fill the role. And so the costs involved are really substantial. So the GP and the other partners didn't realise at first that she would need to make up the difference. I think they all thought their locum insurance would cover any shortfall. And that if there was a shortfall, it would be that much. But then they discovered the insurance they have doesn't pay out at all until 26 weeks. So this GP now owes her practice almost £1,600 for every week she's off because that's how much the difference is. So she's already unwittingly run up a bill of almost £10,000 and could owe the practice £24,000 if she stays off work until January. It is an awful situation. She told me her first reaction when she found out about this was to say, well, I'll have to go back to work. It doesn't matter if I'm sick. I can't afford this. And she did make moves to go back, but she realised that she was so burnt out that it just wasn't possible. Her GP also reminded her that at appraisal, you know, doctors have to sign probity and health statements to say they're fit for work. And this GP said that, in all honesty, she wouldn't have been able to, to sign those because she feels she could make mistakes because of her, um, her burnout and be less tolerant with patients as well. So effectively, she finds herself in this impossible position that has left her constantly worried about her finances. She can't afford to stay off, but then she can't go back because then she would be breaching GMC requirements. She said the whole situation has obviously made it much more difficult for her to get better. Basically, she feels this situation is completely unfair. But one thing is that she was really keen to highlight the unfairness wasn't just about her having to fund this difference. If it wasn't her that was having to pay the difference, then the practice would have to find the money. And she said, why should she or they have to do that? She was saying the NHS made her sick and it should pay for the cover in the same way it would for a porter or nurse or a consultant in a hospital. Do we know how many doctors are affected by this issue? And is there anything that GPs can do to protect themselves? No, I mean, we don't know how many doctors are affected by this, but I don't think it would be an isolated incident. I mean, solicitors we've spoken to have said it's really common clause in a partnership agreement that partners would be expected to make up some or all of the difference between the cost of a locum and the NHS reimbursement. Also, as I mentioned earlier, you know, accountants have told us that a lot of these locum insurance policies usually provide limited cover in the first 26 weeks of illness because of the NHS reimbursement that's there. So I think what we do know now, though, is the increasing number of GPs are having to take time off sick because of burnout, stress and anxiety. And often, you know, as in this GP's case, it's not just a case of having a couple of weeks off and then coming back refreshed. Some of the problems are often much deeper than that. And in many cases, because GPs have struggled on at work while feeling unwell, because they don't want to let patients and their practice down. But clearly, this problem is going to be a particular issue for GP partners who work more sessions, because the reimbursement amount would probably cover those who work fewer sessions. It's also more likely to affect partners who work in areas where the cost of locums is particularly high, or as in this case, where the practices have to rely on agencies. 
It's also obviously really important that GP partners understand what clauses are in their partnership agreement when it comes to sickness and what level of cover their locum insurance provides and whether that's going to be sufficient to cover their absence based on the number of sessions they work and the cost of locums. It's interesting, isn't it? At a time when perhaps there's political pressure and a lot of noise around the proportion of GPs working full-time or or less than full-time, this is almost a direct incentive for practices to recruit people not in a full-time capacity because they know that if they lose them through sickness absence, which is a huge problem at the moment, they won't be fully compensated, you know, if that person is someone who's working full-time. Did the BMA have anything to say about this? Because obviously this is a a contractual problem and, you know, the, the reimbursement doesn't match the cost of locum cover. They're obviously really concerned about cases like the one we've described today. You know, the BMA obviously points out that partnership agreements will vary, but they do acknowledge that the discrepancy between what practices can claim and the actual costs of locums really does need revisiting and that is not enough. You know, like you said there, that is just not enough to cover a full time partner or even this GP as a seven session partner. The BMA's GP committee uh, deputy chair, David Wrigley, says obviously individual GP partners or practices, you know, they shouldn't be penalised because of this difference. And he did say that this is an issue that the BMA is lobbying NHS England on and something that it will continue to push for change on. And we've really got to hope there is some sort of change there because this is an awful position that you wouldn't want anyone to find themselves in. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. Don't forget you can find out more information on all the stories we've covered this week on our website, gponline.com, as well as keeping up to date with all the other news affecting general practice. 